socially responsible investing or social investment are also known as sustainable, social, conscious, or ethical investing. This is an investment strategy that seeks to consider both financial return and social environmental good to bring about social change regarded as positive by proponents. This is your host, DJ Motri, and welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. We are here for another great episode of the Black Equity Podcast. I'm excited. I have on the line a real estate advisor. Uh, We actually bumped into each other online uh, around the topic of redlining. We had an episode a few weeks ago, or actually last week, uh, about uh, redlining, which is a small part of the NCAA conversation that we were having with one of our previous guests. And so today we have Rashad Davis on the line. He's the owner of R2D Real Estate Group. Rashad, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. Uh, being here to be a part of this conversation. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So for those who don't know, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. Uh, yes. So um, we are a commercial and residential real estate firm um, based here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, we work with all types of buyers and sellers and uh, entities uh, to create uh, value through real estate, whether it's through purchase, um, dispositions. Um, also, we do some uh, rehab investors that we work with, uh, affordable housing investor, um, along with multifamily. And also, we represent uh, a lot of small businesses as they expand and grow their businesses. Awesome. You know, I actually... Uh... Last week, or earlier this week, I attended a meeting at the Gantt Center. Uh, they were having a conversation about affordable housing, mm-hmm. and they were talking about Brook Hill Village, and yep. they had some of the members of Brook Hill Village there. Uh, you mentioned affordable housing. How big of an issue is that uh, that you're seeing in Charlotte and in other cities? Oh, yeah, it's definitely a a huge issue. And, you know, the basis of it is that, you know, wages have not caught up with the 
growth price in real estate. And for instance, uh, we just, the recent data from our local um, real estate board, uh, in the rolling last 12 months, our prices in real estate have went up 10%. And so, um, you know, where our average sale price now was about 200 and 200, excuse me, from 240 to about $260,000 for a single family um, home. And that's the average where most of the sales are above that. And so um, when you don't have those wages to match that, a lot of people are getting priced out. And then also we all have a lot of multifamily that's been popping up, which has also created a lot of uh, renters as well. So um, I think, and, and on top of that, we have about 60 people moving to Charlotte every day from different places. So when you put all those market forces in one place, it kind of creates the dynamic that we have now with our affordability issues. I agree. Now, somebody's listening to this episode and they're hearing all this great information. They're like, wait, hold up. How did you get into this? How did you get into understanding about affordable housing, understanding about commercial real estate? Uh, tell us you know, a little bit about your, your background. How did you enter into this space? Yep. And so actually, I, I tell everybody, real estate is my passion. I was kind of one of those folks that knew what I wanted to do from an early age in life. Not necessarily exactly what uh, part of it, because that's kind of one of the cool things about real estate to me is there are so many different aspects of it that you can uh, work in. And so the uh, kind of my history was that my mother's family, um, I shared that article with you, mm -hmm. uh, they uh, had some farmland down in Florida and used to have, you know, businesses and managed properties and things like that. And that would be kind of a part of our, our work. And so, you know, at that point, you hate doing anything that you don't want to do. So I didn't right. understand the business behind it. But that did teach me a lot of the principles of, you know, how you kind of manage that type of stuff. And then from there, it was just kind of exploring, um, you know, different avenues. I've worked um, in development. Um, I was also in an um, organization called Project REAP, which is a great organization for anybody that is looking to get into commercial real estate. Uh, okay. You can uh, search their website. And um, that was kind of like the launch pad that took me into the commercial world that I wanted to go. And I end up um, how I ended up in Charlotte was um, in Project REAP. They have it's basically a, a competition uh, and I end up being in the top five candidates. And so we, the, the prizes that you would call them were these one year um, paid professional interns at different companies that were, had diversity initiatives for uh, minorities in commercial real estate. And so I end up coming to Wachovia, which it was at the time, instead of going to Walmart um, in Arkansas, which is a interesting story in itself. But um that kind of just propelled me into the commercial space. And then from my work um, at the bank there, as I ended up getting my CCIM and then, um, you know, was successful there and then just really wanted to get back to helping, um, you know, people that look like me kind of do commercial real estate, which is uh, totally different than residential real estate. And kind of from that drive, end up starting R2D real estate group um, and, um, have just worked with uh, different individuals and families and uh, small businesses uh, throughout the last uh, six plus years. Now you mentioned something right there and I can't just let it just go by. You mentioned CCIM designation. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about that and why that is so important for what you do. 
Uh, yes, yeah, so CCIM is um, Certified Commercial Investment Member. It's actually an organization out of Chicago, and they basically, um, it's a very long, it's an arduous process. It actually took me five years to complete it wow. because not only do you have to do the coursework, which is a week, each module is a week, and it's usually out of town somewhere, and then it's all based in math and principles of uh, commercial real estate. Then on top of that, you have to get a portfolio of experience of, of various amounts, depending on kind of what you do. So it was a, a combination of that, that it took me uh, five years to do it, but I finally uh, completed it. The final was actually six hours long, just to kind of let you know what kind right. of uh, wow. testing they had. So it was in Orlando, Florida. And um, so I'll never forget that uh, I literally probably took to the to the last <laughs> 10 minutes and right. um, was nervous, but I did pass. And um, you know, it really has created a great foundation just of being able to, when you look at real estate, uh, analyze it just outside of what I would call the personal touch of it. Also to look at it as a business, whether you're a small business, you know, leasing space, or you're a first time home buyer, like, you know, purchasing a property is to be able to look at it from a, a kind of financial standpoint which I think things kind of lead, especially when you think about redlining and other issues that we had in our community. Um, I do think it takes more thought than just, oh, I'm just going to buy a house and I'm going to do this because you really need to look and kind of see how that growth is going to affect you and your family. Now, before we get to the redlining topic, which I know a lot of people are, are anxious to hear, uh, there may be some people listening and they still don't quite understand the difference between residential and commercial. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you could just tell us a little bit about the difference between the two and why commercial real estate is so important to understand. Right. So um, so there's a couple different um, designations, you can say, of how you divide uh, residential and commercial real estate. So I generally say that residential real estate is anything less than four units um, okay. in one place, including single family homes and duplexes and uh, quadplexes. And commercial real estate would be um, on the residential side, anything bigger than a quad, along with retail, office space, uh, warehouse space. Um, they have specialty spaces. Churches are uh, commercial real estate. So, um, and it kind of varies uh, from community to community. And interestingly enough, this is something that we know from economic development that um, a lot of times, and we've seen this, where you have the hyper growth of residential, but without the commercial component, and how it actually can be detrimental to new communities, because you really do need that commercial node that drives the, you know, retail for these new rooftops. And that's how retailers, they come in and they look at rooftops, how many are they, uh, the demographics of those rooftops, and what kind of services do they need, and they create those uh, commercial spaces. Awesome. And so uh, on our Instagram, we were talking about this issue of redlining. Uh, it came up while we were studying, you know, the NCAA, because what we found was that over 80 percent of college athletes come from uh, mm -hmm. poverty stricken communities. And so as, as I'm studying this and I'm looking at this and then you know, going to places like the Gantt Center where they're talking about the, the uh, Brook Hill Village and redlining. Uh, that was taking place in Charlotte, I believe it was in the 30s. If I have my dates wrong, I'm sure you'll correct me. That's correct, uh, the 30s. Okay, so I'm looking at all this. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, well, how do we explain redlining 
to our audience and why it's so important. And so we bumped into each other. I know you say you collect maps that actually uh, detail uh, what was happening with redlining. So tell us about your uh, passion for understanding this and a little bit about what redlining actually is. Oh, yes, definitely. And um, it's interesting enough because redlining um, was actually uh, coined as a term in 1960 by James McKnight, but of course had been going on in 1930s and, and before that. And there's different type of redliners because even if I was just on the phone with uh, my mother before we start um, before our interview and she was reminding me about in the farm world how basically like the USDA kind of uh, did their own version of redlining by not lending to lending uh, money and other um, assets to black farmers. And they end up, a lot of them end up losing their farms and, and other stuff or were just kind of incapacitated from that lack of funding. And then when we think about, you know, redlining with these maps, these were um, kind of the, the central cores of cities where they basically drew lines around black neighborhoods and uh, would send them out and say, okay, if you're a loan investor or uh, you're giving out mortgages or even, I mean, they use it for credit cards and other things, which they didn't have as much back then. But it was, if you can imagine these maps of Charlotte or Atlanta or DC or LA, where basically people of color live, had red lines around them. And then all of the uh, other neighborhoods um, would have green lines around them. So if you're an investor, it's kind of like an easy sell, right? And it's the psychology behind it is amazing as well. It's like green is good, you know, red is bad, and or red is stop and green is go. And so with the uh, investments that they were making, I mean, it's like, no question, if I'm going to make an investment, I'm definitely going to the green area. And so uh, just how over years, and actually they did not, uh, the Community Reinvestment Act was actually in 1977. Uh, that was, which was ironically the year I was born. So from 1930 to 1977, this was going on. Mm. And so when people realized what was happening and this act came through, uh, came through in the seventies. What was the act supposed to do? Was it supposed to actually rectify the, the problem that was actually there? Uh, what, what exactly did the act uh, end up accomplishing? So the community and it's um, so very interesting coming from the banking world and in, uh, in banking real estate is that we have certain locations where uh, because of the community reinvestment act, we had to make sure that they had uh the certain demographics had access to financial um, institutions and services. And so that was always a big thing uh, about where we had to put branches and they were not always the most profitable, but because of the CRA, um, the community Re reinvestment act, they would have to, you know, put them there and to see how they would balance that out in a region with a bank that was, you know, very, uh, very high volume. Right. And so, um, you know, the, the Community Reinvestment Act was uh, passed in 1977, and it was supposed to end all redlining practices. But of course, um, there's still the after effect of that to today. Um, and also redlining existed the same thing about commercial uh, nodes as well uh, by retailers, both brick and mortar and online retailers kind of also have used, our, you know, redlining in the past. And that's um, kind of where my passion behind it um, has come is that it's basically a lack of respect for the black dollar, which we know is a trillion dollar, you know, industry, 
but all these systems have been in, been put in place to basically devalue it. But at the same time, all these businesses make money off of it anyway. So that's right. always been a, a interesting dynamic to me. So when did you first learn of this? When did when did you first pick up this this piece of wisdom that you realized, oh my goodness, they've been, you know, quote unquote, redlining us all this time. They've been, you know, pushing us out of getting the necessary resources, the necessary investors to come in. When did you first learn of this? When did you first pick this up? You know, it was um, interesting enough. It was kind of my upbringing in Atlanta. And and this was before, you know, this is just being a kid and just having, you know, just observations, but not even having that in-depth knowledge of real estate at that time. But that how, like, we could live in a neighborhood that looked just like a neighborhood that one of my white classmates lived in. And the neighborhood would look exactly the same. But then when you would go to the grocery store and other stuff, it would be like a totally different world. And you're like, what makes us so different? And again, this is just observation of just the different type, the level of care that was provided to these, you know, shopping centers, like the different stuff that they had compared to the stores where we lived at. And we lived in a, you know, a middle class, upper middle class black neighborhood as well. So again, it wasn't a, a money thing or it was, you know, not a less of a neighborhood. Well, my neighborhood was predominantly black and theirs was predominantly, um, you know, Caucasian. And so just to kind of see that and remember thinking like that was just weird to me. And even um, because especially in Atlanta, where you had a huge um, uh, population of, you know, middle class, um, you know, working class African-Americans that made just as money as their counterparts in other places. But um, but then they still lived in two different worlds in the same city. So um, I think just some of those moments just kind of growing up um, and which then created a I call myself a student of real estate. Uh, have you have you uh, thought about how that correlates to Martin Luther King had a speech? And actually, Brian Allen has been saying that he spoke with Coretta Scott King. And she said the real reason why they killed Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't because I had, you know, I had a dream speech, but it was really his other speech that he was giving about there there being two Americas, right? And about their, uh, their the need for economic inclusion, the Poor People's March. Um, have you had a chance to review some of those speeches or been exposed to some of the things that Martin Luther King was saying uh, with those? Well, you know, it's interesting. So I've read, I've not um, read all of the speeches, but I've definitely mm-hmm. read through them. But, and then the correlation uh, to kind of bring this whole redlining thing on home was from sure. a high level. When you think about the Tulsa, Oklahoma's, uh, yeah. the bombings there, the Rosewood in Florida, or basically any time um, a, um, a minority community had created a certain level of self um contained wealth is when all the violence starts and so right. to your martin luther king thing it's that same it was at that same point in time because martin luther king grew up on auburn avenue which in atlanta it was every it was several or numerous amounts of the same black businesses because they that was the only place that african americans in the city could go and again based on numbers alone and um and again i think that was um even in tulsa that was one of the precipices for the whole bombing was that they, this community had uh, black community had built their wealth and everything else. And then they wanted to start supporting uh, po- uh, political candidates to help support 
you know, their needs. And then that was a huge threat because to the power structure of these economies. And I think, you know, again, correlating back to Martin Luther King, it was like when he's like, well, you guys are using our money, even though you say it's bad. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's not, again, we, it comes back to economics. And so I do think that there is a correlation of racial violence and economics, which also leads to, um, which is a part of land ownership and business ownership as well. Part of what he was also saying in that speech, what I found to be amazing, is that when you grow up that way, sometimes what you can do is trick your mind to thinking that uh, it, became, it becomes a cloud of inferiorities. When mm-hmm. you said. And so now you're looking at these people over on this side and, oh, they must be better than us because they, you know, they have all this and we don't have all this and they get this and they get these advantages, but we're not getting these advantages. And so if you're a child, you look over, you don't know, you may not know any better. Right. You may start thinking, wow, we've done something wrong or we're not, you know, we're not as good as these right. other, other kids. Did you ever experience people like that or did you experience that yourself? Well, you know, it's like the psychology of of racism kind of gets into that of definitely showing the minority that they are less than in in everyday terms, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of builds that, um, you know, into the system, we'll call it. And so um, I'm I'm trying to think I can't think of uh, any maybe instances, but it was it was it was lots of observations of. Like, why are things so different? Because we're not different, because knowing the people, we're not different from the people, but we're just a different color than the people. And then to see how treatments were different, where it was the quality of schools, like I said, um, just even like shopping centers and other stuff. And then the one thing I did see was um, white flight uh, growing up, even Ooh. from where uh, my uh, family still stays now. Um, when we first moved in, we were probably like, it was say it was a, a cul-de-sac of 10 families and maybe three of them were black and we made the fourth one. And then within five years, our entire cul-de-sac was now, except for one neighbor who's still there now, was entirely African-American in the matter of like five years. Yeah, so now you're looking at like modern day, mm-hmm. all the places that were once redlined. Yep. Now magically... Yeah. You know, I'm even looking in Charlotte. I was uh, in Uptown the other day and I'm like, wait a second. Everything that was once black is now white. Yep. And and I live in West Charlotte. So I have and I have for the last uh, 15 years. So I can attest that um, I remember when I first moved into my neighborhood, people are like, why would you want to live there? And now people are like, it's so amazing. It's such a convenient location, all the other stuff. And it's just Mm -hmm. interesting uh, perception and reality are kind of again and psychology kind of it play into this whole uh you know this whole redlining thing so what is some of the answers as someone who is actually studying this and helping projects uh come to completion what are some ways that investors can work with someone like you to you know build our own worlds and, and build our own uh, you know, retail spots and, and create our own economies. What are some of the things that people can do to do that? Well, you know, I think something that's been very popular in um, in recently was has kind of been like community crowdfunding. I know mm-hmm. that they are like doing one to open a African American grocery store in Atlanta. Um, I think Jay Morrison actually built um, the Tulsa Fund, 
to mm-hmm. actually make um, investments in communities of color. So I really do think that that has power because when you control your environment and you can control your land, um, then you have so much control over everything else. And that was the thing about redlining was basically the control was taken away and you were always a renter and there was never any ownership. And so then therefore you could be moved out quickly. Your rent could be raised quickly. Like there's there. And then as from a familiar structure, like then there's no foundation because it's all the foundation is always moved because there is something about having, I mean, it could be a tent on the side of the road that you own or a mansion, but it is something um, psychological about having kind of a base of where you're from, where your family's from um, and things like that. And even though that base might switch, uh, but at the same time, it is, you know, that there's some kind of foundation there. And I think that's what. You you mentioned earlier about uh, an article that you sent me. Um, dealing with a community in Florida, which was founded mm-hmm. by slaves and still thrives today. And for you, what does that message resonate for you? What do you, what is the wisdom that you pick up from uh, that article and stories like that? Right. So my uh, mother's uh, family was uh, one of the twelve founding families, and then the name Billsville is named after one of. Um, I think he's my great, great, great uncle, but he was, um, of course, from the same family. And basically during the, um, the tough times, uh, he would go and make sure that people could keep their land and would pay for it and uh, did some community projects and other stuff just to keep community going. So they named the uh, community um, for him after his work, uh, you know, during the depression and, and later on. And, I will tell you that is the one thing that um, I've always had a sense of self from um, my family because I've always known like that land there and that house there um, I've, ever since I can ever remember. And then also the storytelling of the things that um, happen uh, to in order to keep it. And then the stories of even like how our ancestors were able to found it. And that always kind of grounded me into uh, could number one, just a sense of community, and then also a sense of, you know, uh, partnership with others for, you know, mutual success, because you can actually see it, you know, live and direct and what it uh, co- created. And also that community created a whole uh, lots of educators. Uh, most of my mother and her people that she grew up with and her siblings were either in education or in business. And that was another uh, huge impact of when you have your own community educating your own children. I think it also helps to build that history. Like it's, it's, you continue to tell that history so that you know you do have a connection point um, somewhere because a lot of times we're told that our lives all begin at slavery mm-hmm. um, in history, whereas there's history on the other side of that was like a lot of us existed even before that. And so to know that story, uh, that kind of gives you a sense of self that I think that is um, just has a a different view than what the mainstream media uh, sells to us. I agree. So I'm sitting in this meeting a few days ago at the Gantt Center and they're talking about affordable housing. And it took literally 45 minutes to an hour for anyone to mention wages. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did you get a chance to go to that meeting? 
No, no, I actually okay. I missed it, but I heard about it though. Yes. Okay. Well, what did you hear before I go on a, a tangent here? Oh no, no, you can go on your tangent. That okay. basically, I mean, because this is we, I kind of hear that this is the, the the, and that's a whole other episode though. But it's like, how do we get into the real conversations about how we're going to fix this? Because we already know we have affordability issue. I mean, that's very obvious. So right. Well, the the black woman that was up there, she was she's actually over affordable housing. I can't I can't think if it's with the with the city or, or not, but she's over some type of department. And she said, well, the real issue, the real root cause of affordable housing is looking at segregation and looking at she didn't mention redlining, but she was mm-hmm. kind of hinting at uh, that being the issue, which you would think, well, of course, that's the issue, because right above on the second floor, if you go into the actual Brook Hill Village exhibit, at the Gantt Center, there's a huge map, and it's talking about redlining. The whole presentation is telling you what happened. And so the four, the three other panelists are sitting there, and they all just are stunned that she would even say segregation had anything to do with it. By the way, these are all white panelists, and uh, the, the host is a, a, a white uh, male, and they're, they kind of dismiss that that is even the real root problem. And so then they go on for another 20 minutes, and they start talking about, uh, you know, building buildings, how much money is put into the funds. And it was, all, you know, throwing numbers around about where is the allocation of resources going. But we never got to the real meat of the issue, which is how we got here. And I, I see that a lot. I see that a lot in uh, many different cities where we really are going to keep ignoring the real issue here and just keep pretending as if it never happened. Right. And I mean, if you want to, because I actually did um, I have a little research, even just about how it happened in Charlotte, sure. uh, just so we have it for the record. And so um, um, and Tom Hanchett um, is a great um, historian here in Charlotte and has really spent some time kind of documenting uh, this stuff. And so because the records basically show that in 1870, which Charlotte at the time was only as big as what is inside the 277 loop. Mm-hmm. Um, but that basically in all four wars that people of all races and income levels lived on the same blocks. Mm. So Charlotte was a very integrated city in the 1870s. And then in the 1990s, uh, excuse me, excuse me, I'm sorry, the 1900s. So then the city started expanding, which was basically kind of in the catering the three classes. Uh, the first one was the affluent whites, which were basically moving into Myers Park, which was established about, 1911 and then the poor whites were moving into noda around 1903 which was when the highland park mill was founded and they were you know working there in the mill and then the african-americans were moving to brooklyn which is now the second wards where most of our government buildings are so um and that was just you know just natural growth of the city so then the great depression hits um, and then the mortgage market dries up. And then this is in that 1930s um, time frame. And the federal government starts begin color coding neighborhoods, basically for out of town investors to be able to kind of access, again, their credit risk for investments in these areas. And so it's kind of the beginning of redlining. And so basically in the neighborhoods like in Brooklyn uh, Village, people were never able to own their homes. And so they were mostly renting. And mm-hmm. so um, and then you skip. And so basically, again, you have this group of people of color in this area where there is some ownership and other stuff, but but not a lot of it, maybe about 40 percent. 
And then um, you skip down to uh, Charlotte's next growth spurt. And then all this federal money becomes available to tear down rundown areas of town. And so what had then become a mixed community of Brooklyn Village, um, which had 1,400 homes and 215 businesses, um, and then also the Second War High School um, was all torn down about in the 1960s. And then from there, Black families also relocated to Belmont, Wesley Heights, uh, you know, Biddleville, doing John C. Smith. And then the next ram was that they then take I-77 and completely cut all those new neighborhoods off from this new uptown thoroughfare. Yeah. And then we are now where we are today and all this stuff. And if you look on a map, as far as redlining, if you look at the redlining maps of Charlotte, these are the last undeveloped areas of uptown Charlotte, just in, almost in direct correlation with the redlining maps. This was the last stance. This and was the last you, stance. Yep. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at history happening and future happening all at the same time. And all these people are sitting there pretending as if nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to focus on, well, what is the amount of funding that's going to come through? But right. If we, if we never get to the root issue, uh, which I get it, they know what the root issue is because it's sitting right there at the same building. And it's right. telling you what the real root issue is. The problem is, in my opinion, there's the, the wrong people are, are telling the stories. You, you, you're handing the mic over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wish the people that when I went to the uh, Open Community Day mm-hmm. at the Grant Center, though, I wish those people were on the mic because they gave a tour Mm-hmm. of what was really happening and then they broke it down step by step and um, who I don't know where these other people came from but they just stormed in and, and kind of created their own narrative that hey you know in order to get affordability to where it needs to be it's a six billion dollar project mm-hmm. and it's like okay a six billion dollar project to do what though what do you re- okay you're going to build buildings and that's I mean I understand but the wages haven't you haven't addressed wages once, right? And then, but when they did get to it, it was uh, towards the end, and they said, you know, for somebody who's working minimum wage uh, would have to work 190 hours or something like that per week mm-hmm. in order to afford, um, you know, the what the average rents are. And so, okay, you just leave that lingering. So then, what do we do about that? And nobody is offering any type of solution. You don't have anybody there that can offer any type of solution. They mentioned, you know, Harris Teeter and grocery stores raising, you know, the amount they would pay. But, hey, it's a private institution. So they're not required to do that. The only way to do that is through the government. Okay, so who are we petitioning? Who was that politician? And then they, they, they prance out people who are actual members of that community. And they ask them, well, how much are you paying in rent? And, you know, the person saying $500 and even that is, is, is a stretch. And so then they start asking, Hey, so, you know, when this, when, when the new uh, buildings are, are built and um, the rents r- raised, are you going to be able to get into the new buildings? And one of the ladies says, well, I'm on the wait list, but I don't know. And so she's kind of in limbo. And so I'm literally sitting there watching the end and the beginning of eras 
of of all these years and years of tearing down our communities, and then they release, then they the, the big nail hits hits the fan, and you mentioned it earlier. It, it the whole entire project. It doesn't even matter what we do. We don't own any of it because it's privately owned by either a private equity fund or a private equity uh, company of some sort. It's they're they're really it's like they're they're slowly walking this through and pretending as if nothing ever happened. Right. Yeah. It's definitely and see you have to know the history and that's just a, a, um has been a piece that even what I was saying with my family is that always know is knowing your history which I know for. A lot of us is not possible based on, you know, how our families arrived here. But, you know, knowing your history, because then you can start questioning some of this, these things that are happening. Like, so nobody owns anything over there ever. And and, the, and it's interesting. I was um, in New York City um, uh, about two months ago and uh, just did one of the drive around tours. And it was mm-hmm. the first time that I had heard that basically Central Park was the same thing was a place of very uh, vibrant, diverse community of immigrants and people of color that lived there. And then the wealthy people that built all the apartment buildings around it decided they need an outdoor space and basically took all that land from those people and built Central Park. And there's a great story on NPR about it um, as well. So, I mean, you kind of see this happen often in different ways. Um, and so, um, you know, in Charlotte, I do think we have some great leaders trying to, uh, you know, come up with solutions. But um, what I always kind of pose back to them is that if they could federally mandate that they could redline, why can't we federally mandate that these neighborhoods, you know, be improvement zones and true improvement zones where the people that actually live there see it? Because the one thing I have, just my own personal experience in real estate and kind of development, gentrification, is there is a certain element sometimes. In, in, in most neighborhoods, 80% of every, everybody is doing what they were supposed to be doing. And um, as far as being a good neighbor, whether it's a good business neighbor or a good um, you know, residential neighbor. Um, and then there's that 20% element that kind of makes it unwantable for everybody and that could be in great good areas or bad areas so that element piece of it does have to have some kind of um genesis you know it it has to change in order for the neighborhoods to change so there is always a small part of you know neighborhood building where there'll be change but then the change ends up switching the whole you know, population, like 50% of the people are, you know, are more gone. Now that's huge. And, and it's, but that's what's literally happening as we're tearing down projects and building new ones. And like you said, the the lady's paying $500. Like you can't, I don't know of any rental apartment here where you can pay $500 for, um, you know, for standard, you know, housing uh, here in Charlotte, where the average rents are like, you know, twelve, thirteen hundred dollars for a one bedroom. So, you know, you see the huge wealth gap that exists there. And it's also kind of ties into the mobility study that we've seen um, here in Charlotte that had us almost dead last of the list as far as uh, being uh, born into kind of poverty to be able to change your circumstances is that it's probably least possible here in Charlotte, even in a city where, you know, billions of dollars run through just the banks alone and, you know, Fortune 500 companies and everything are, are abundant here in our market. 
and people are still struggling to, you know, make it, uh, you know, just into being above the poverty line, let alone being a homeowner. Do you think that these opportunity zones, the majority of opportunity zones, I believe, was uh, started during the Trump administration? Do you think those same opportunity zones are the same places that were once redlined? Uh, you know, it's interesting, and that would be a great study. Uh, I would, just off the top of my head, knowing the ones in Charlotte, I would say y- yes, uh, a, a lot of it, um, a lot of it probably is is in there. And I even think that maybe that's some of the, um, when they were drawing the maps, uh, you know, what they were going to do. And I was like, I know I probably will have to eat crow on this later, but with the opportunity zones, the way that they're set up, they definitely could uh, provide some um uh, trans- transitional opportunities for these communities, but the program itself is not very, um, there's a skeleton, but there's only a little bit of meat on the bones, and there's not like a full body there, and I think that's what's probably kept a lot of investors on the fence, and also the program itself is based on a timeline, and so you have to invest in certain time periods to be able to, you know, uh, achieve this investment and it's it was a rolling 10 years and we're already like in year uh, we have like six years left so unless they extend those programs I'm not sure the exact impact that they will have on our communities but I do think that they are probably um, within or encompass red line areas yeah as soon as I saw it and I started kind of piece it together and it, it I mean, it's not exactly the red line areas but just a couple cities that I've seen, Detroit, I look at Charlotte, so you look at one map, you look at the other, it's very close. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's almost like somebody said, well, let's scribble, you know, just a little bit to, more to the left or to the right so it don't look the same. Right. It, it, you know, it's it's so close. But, um, it, no, this is a very fascinating conversation. Um, I, I know it's something that I, I, I definitely want to keep a, an eye on. and I, And I look forward to actually – uh, figuring out ways to redevelop, you know, places like West Charlotte, mm-hmm. um, and, and working with other investors and figuring out, well, what can we do? You know, what kind of um, things can we put in place? Especially, there's parts I've seen uh, people talking about food deserts. It's like, well, what right. can we do to, you know, make sure that that, that at the very least that we have the necessary resources in those areas for people to get fresh food? Um, so, yeah, how do people work with you, Rashad? going forward uh what's the best way to reach out to you and what type of uh what type of partnerships or what type of services are you looking to provide uh yes so the best way to uh to reach out i'm on uh, instagram um my instagram handle is mr uh, lux bohemian um you can also find me out uh on linkedin at uh, rashad r davis and then also um my website is rashad davis dot evrealestate.com and um, it has all my contact information on there as well and I do I actually work with what I will call some conscious investors and so we are actually actively looking for properties in West Charlotte for them to purchase um, and some of them um, are already rehabbed or to rehab them and to provide um, to try to provide some affordable housing for people in that uh, community um, I also love working with urban pioneers, especially um, young people of color that are moving here to Charlotte. I think that there are some great opportunities in the city for you to, you know, be able to uh, purchase uh, in a 
where the within the path of progress and be able to see a good return on your investment. And then we also um, like to work with investors that are interested in bigger projects, um, whether it be retail or multifamily. And also senior the housing is another big issue in our community. Um, I know the uh, centers uh, near my home, there's three of them. And all of them said they at least have a two-year wait. And this is just a deeper Ooh. level of redlining because now you have these people that never have been able to own. Now they're on Social Security. Now they're trying to find a place to live in retirement and are still having similar issues because they were not afforded an opportunity to you know, gain any equity to help kind of fund their retirement. So um, there are lots of different ways that... Um, that we can help here in our community and all of them don't have to be as big as grand as a multi-billion dollar fund. Um, like I said, there's also small ways that we as individuals and groups can um, assist to, for the betterment of our community. Do you ever have uh, opportunities to uh, host workshops uh, with those group of conscious investors? I would love to sit down with you and, and some of those investors uh, and continue the conversation off air and uh, look at, you know, what are we, you know, looking at, you know, acquiring, what are we looking at doing? Because I know uh, your network is, is very important uh, as, as you're building, you know, in a city and, and, and building those relationships. Uh, do you have, have those types of workshops or those types of opportunities to work with you like that? You know, that's actually something that we're planning for uh, 2020, uh, one for home ownership, uh, one for um, small businesses and commercial real estate, and then also one for investors. So uh, definitely coming soon because just like you've asked about it, I've had um, several people come to me as well and say, hey, let's really um, kind of start getting together to have these conversations. Yeah, well, if you need assistance, if you need help in any way, let us know. Uh, we would love to partner with you in some capacity. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. And the doors are open for you to come back, continue this conversation. If you have something in the future that you want uh, our, our audience to know about, please let us know. We'll, we'll love to get that out to the people. Okay, sounds good. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. All right, bye-bye. This conversation is so important for the culture because I'm encouraging those who are already investing, those who are about to invest, to become ethical investors, become conscious investors. What does that look like? It means not just looking at the financial gains, but paying attention to all the different things that surround what you're investing in, looking at the full picture. And so what I want you to do is make that pledge to yourself, not to me. You don't owe me anything. Make the pledge to yourself to be socially responsible with your investing and to really look at things from a, from a 360 degrees. Now, what I am encouraging you to do is to keep listening to these episodes because we're going to give you game on how to make sure you're getting your financial returns the way you want to, but then to also do it the right way. Now, you can choose not to do that. You can choose to go listen to any other podcast, any other platform, and invest however you choose to invest. But if you're going to be a Black Equity listener, I am encouraging you to think about the social responsibility in our culture of how you are investing. Because ultimately, that's what we're going to be talking about here. 
for the long-term health, the long-term growth of our community. Thank you for listening to the Black Equity Podcast. And actually, uh, we have three books that we want you to check out. They're also going to be in the show notes. Uh, This is recommended by our guest today, Rashad Davis. Uh, The first book is Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva. The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And The Color of Money by Mercer uh, Baradon. Uh, Those are three books that Rashad Davis, our guest today, is recommending for the culture to pick up. And so there's your wisdom. Pick up those books to read more about this topic and about this subject. Thank you to Rashad Davis for coming on the podcast. He has an open invitation to coming back. And thank you for being wonderful listeners and committed to the vision of the Black Equity Podcast and the Black Equity Network. Thank you for listening to the Black Equity Podcast. I am inviting you to join the exclusive Sip and Share Wine Club, which offers monthly and quarterly memberships available, deliveries of two, four, or six bottles of sweet, dry, or both wines right to your door at a 10% discount. Only 100 monthly members accept it. Begin enjoying all the privileges and benefits that go along with belonging to the club. There is no fee to join. You only pay the cost of your wine plus tax and shipping. Two wines is $38 plus tax and shipping. Four wines is $76 plus tax and shipping. And six wines is $114 plus taxes and shipping. Once again, join the Sip and Share Wine Club. This is your invite. Only 100 monthly members accepted.